couple things. One, we're trying to honor our time today. Marked is happening, as I mentioned for the four of us during announcements. Marked is happening, and uh, that starts at noon, and so we want to get out in plenty of time. Marked is a, a annual conference, kind of moved through the windows of the Sparrow Project to help the church and believers understand the plight that marginalized women face around the world, to bring not only awareness, but a movement to action. And so our church is deeply kind of invested in the cause of fighting for the oppressed around the world, understanding the plight of marginalized women around the world. So several of our folks are leaders and a bunch of you guys are going. And so we're trying to honor that. And the way we did that best was by trying to start on time. So um, we're going to try and get out here in a little bit quickly today so that folks who need to head on down to Mark can do just that. A couple of things we want to recognize real quick. One, the Stevensons uh, are here. They're back from Papua New Guinea. Morgan and Danielle are here with their kiddos. They're back from Papua New Guinea, so we see them there with their babies. They've been in Papua New Guinea for a year, and they have just taken a role at a camp that they're going to be serving as really program directors in, kind of outside the Denver area, and are here for the uh, Sunday. So if you get a chance to shake their hand, say hi to them. It's great to have you guys back. Anytime you're in town, we love to, to have you. One of our missionary partners, they were in Papua New Guinea, and I wish we had a ton of time, and I'd let Morgan get up here and tell you all about what they did, but maybe for another time. But they're here. I'm excited about that. And today is a really important Sunday in the life of the church. It's Palm Sunday. It's the day that sort of marks, as I said earlier, the single greatest week in all of human history, right? It's the, the day that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. The, the, the moment that was prophesied about, the moment where Jesus would come in and, and the Israelite people had hoped he would come in as a conquering hero, that he would redeem Israel from the Roman rule, set them up as their own nation, and they would have power again like they did back when David was king. But Jesus came for an entirely different purpose. He comes riding into town on the back of a baby donkey to the chants of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. In other words, God save us as they're crying out. And they think Jesus is going to be this political hero. And in five days, that same crowd would turn. They would begin chanting for him to be crucified. And ultimately, Jesus would be um, executed on Friday night, thus bringing us to Easter next Sunday. And it's an incredible movement week. And so we really encourage you that if uh, you haven't had a chance through this week, just to read through the story that's unfolding. Open your Bible read through the story that's unfolding in preparation for all that we celebrate um, on Easter Sunday. Again, we're having a Good Friday service here at 6 o'clock. We'd love for you to come be a part of that. It's a journey of scripture and song as we understand the substitutionary movement that took Jesus to the cross on our behalf, and we anticipate the glory of the resurrection on Sunday morning. So those kind of things aside, no special Palm Sunday sermon for you. We are in Acts, and we are moving through Acts. So that was your Palm Sunday shot. So last week, well, let me put it this way. We're now into week 23 of our journey through the book of Acts. It is a kind of a long, drawn-out, verse-by-verse kind of movement through that book, and it's been quite an experience so far. What I want you to remember thus far is that Acts is not a book. It's not just a letter. It's actually a call. It's the call of the church. It's the birth movement of the church, and it's the call of the Christ follower. It is who you and I are called to be. We are sent into the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to live as followers of Christ, both individually and in community together. And that is the whole movement of the book of Acts. And last week, we kind of learned a couple of things. But real quickly, I won't give you a full history, but real quickly, Saul is out of the picture for a while. So we've seen him become converted. He went and spent three, he spent three years in the wilderness 
of the Holy Spirit. God was teaching him all kinds of mysteries of, you know, the nature of the universe and just educating his heart and really cool stuff. Paul comes back um, and he shows up in Jerusalem again and his life is threatened and we explored all this weeks ago. And they shipped him off back home to Joppa and he's going to be out of the picture for about 8 to 10 years, all right? In our time frame, until chapter 11. We're in chapter 9 right now. But he's out of the picture for 8 to 10 years. And Peter is back in this as a central figure. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of Peter. Luke, our author of the book of Acts, puts Peter back in the forefront. Paul disappears for a while. Uh, eventually, Barnabas is going to go get Paul, bring him back to Antioch, and they're going to start going on missionary journeys. But for now, the attention is focused back to Peter and a guy by the name of Cornelius, who we're going to meet next week in the entire 10th chapter of Acts is going to be dedicated to Peter and Cornelius. So things have shifted and changed. And last week, we saw this focus shift to Peter. And Peter is on a, a journey of sorts. He's traveling around to all the surrounding towns and villages, and he's doing a couple of things. One, he's carrying out the Great Commission, that Jesus has called them to go to the nations and tell everybody about him and his teachings and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he's also going to these gathered groups of believers in these villages and towns, and he is teaching them. Right? And so last week, we only made it through three verses. And the reason was, is, and I told you that a lot of what I do on Sunday morning is really just preaching things that God is teaching to my heart. Right? So it's not I'm trying to do this to bestow all this wonderful stuff upon people, like I have something to offer. Really, my teaching is just an expression of what God is doing in me. And I could not move past these three verses. They were really powerful. What we saw was Peter was traveling northwest out of Jerusalem, headed to a village named Lydda, which is about 25 minutes northwest of Jerusalem. And he gets there, and as he arrives, he meets this man named Aeneas who has been paralyzed for eight years. And he looks at him, and he basically says, Aeneas, at this very moment, we explored all this stuff last week, at this very moment, Jesus Christ is healing you. Get up and make your bed, right? The paralyzed folks in those days laid on these mats. He says, get up and make your bed. And immediately this guy gets up and the entire area is just astonished and they become to know the Lord. And it all happens in three verses. And what we unpacked was this, our understanding of identity and how our identity is wrapped up in Christ and what it means to us and truly understanding the words that Peter spoke to Aeneas and said, at this moment, Jesus is healing you. And what it means as followers of Christ to realize that Jesus is at work at every moment in our lives. And so I encourage you, if you haven't, Listen to that. It was kind of a personal movement out of my heart, and uh, those will be online, so you can take a listen to it. Those three verses led us to Peter staying in Lydda, where we're going to see him this week. And we're going to learn, and it's in sort of an incredible miracle moment where we see someone raised from the dead. So Peter is waiting there. He has just healed Aeneas, and he is going to get word that a beloved disciple um, in, about 10 in a town 10 miles north has fallen sick and then passed away. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 9, and we are going to wrap up chapter 9 today, starting in verse 36. So if you've got that Bible, go ahead and turn to it. If you've got one beside you, feel free to use that one. If you don't own one, take the one there with you. We'd love for you to have it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active. Lord, I thank you that... Um, in your sort of divine sovereignty, this passage this morning is about this incredible woman by the name of Tabitha, and it just so happens to fall on this day that we are attempting as a church to recognize and understand and fight for the plight of marginalized women around the world. And God, I, I just thank you for the way you organize things. 
Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that you would reveal truth to us and that you would teach us. Lord, you are ultimately the one that teaches and reveals truth. So God, we ask you, um, God, to move in our midst. Take a moment right where you sit and just ask God to move in you this morning. That he would teach you something. He would refresh your soul. Whatever that is, just ask God to move. next few moments, we release control of our lives, of our anxieties, of our fears, of our preconceived notions about church and stuff, and we just let our guard down so that you would instruct our hearts. Take a moment and just pray for someone beside you. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them Let's look at verse 36. All right, now, Peter has just healed this guy by the name of Aeneas. He is, was paralyzed for eight years. He is now walking around with a new life. And so we're going to pick up in 36, right where we left off last week. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lida was near Joppa, and so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lida, they sent two men and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room, and all the widows stood around him crying and showing him robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and he got down on his knees, and he prayed, and turning towards the woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up, and he took her by the hand, and he helped her to her feet. And then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So, pretty amazing miracle moment that happens. Peter is in this town, Lida, where he had just healed Aeneas, and we learn that there is a disciple named Tabitha. That's her Aramaic name. Her Greek name is Dorcas. We're going to call her Tabitha, right? Because no one deserves to be called Dorcas. However, that name, both in Greek and in Aramaic, means gazelle or antelope. I like to think she's probably a beautiful runner, you know, whatever that looks like. But her, and that's what her name means. It's actually a beautiful name. It doesn't sound that way to our English ear. But both Aramaic and Greek uh, both mean the same thing. And there's this disciple there. We don't know that much about her. We know that she was a disciple and that she did good work. She was always doing good things. And she helped the poor. And she was in this town called Joppa, which is about 10 miles to the northwest of Lida. It was right on the coast. It's actually now... Uh, a city called Jaffa, and it's a suburb of the modern city Tel Aviv. So if you're familiar with your Israel geography. If not, it doesn't matter. It's just a town on the coast. And so she was there, and she was a disciple, and she loved doing good works, and she did things for the poor. And she got sick, and she died, and we don't know how, and that doesn't seem to be the point. And Peter is only 10 miles away, 
He is in this little town called Lydda, some 10 miles to the southeast. And when the disciples in Joppa hear that Peter is there, they send two guys to go down there and urge Peter to come. Now, I don't know why they wanted Peter to come. I don't know if they had the expectation that when Peter came, he was going to do something miraculous like this, or if they just wanted Peter to come and speak words of comfort and wisdom to these ailing, broken-hearted people, because they obviously loved Tabitha very dearly. Well, they send two guys, and they run the 10 miles down to Lida, and they tell him all about Tabitha and what has happened. And Peter comes to Joppa with them, and it says when he arrives, he finds that her body has been moved upstairs, and it has been washed and is laying in an upper room, which is a very common custom. They would take a body after death, and they would wash it and clean it and prepare it for burial, and they would lay it in a room, this place, an upper room, for close friends and family to come and view that body because mourning in those days was a multiple-day event, and it was an incredible display. I mean, people would cover themselves, and they would weep, and they would wail, and you would see them in the streets, and family would come from all over. And so for days, they would keep washing and preparing the body because bodies have a way of decomposing, trying to keep it through this mourning period before the burial time. And so when Peter arrives at this house, he finds this woman, Tabitha, prepared for burial. She has been washed and cleaned and laid in this upper room. She is dead, dead. And when he gets there, he goes upstairs, and in that special gathering area, he finds a bunch of widows, right? And they are gathering there, and they are mourning. And when I say mourning, I am telling you, it was an Olympic sport. They screamed, and they cried, and they covered themselves with everything that they could, and they just, for days, would have this sort of procession. And he finds these widows up there. And they are mourning, and they're starting to show Peter these garments. They're saying, look at these robes and these things that she made while she was still alive. Now, a couple of interesting notes here. We know that Tabitha was a woman who loved to do good things, and she did good things for the poor. And in those days, often the most poor people among a people group were its widows. And there's a lot of reason for that. It was a very patriarchal society. And if you didn't have a husband or a son that could provide for you, you had no way of earning money. Women were not allowed to work. They were not educated, right? They were not allowed allowed to own land. We talked a lot about this when we explored Ruth a few years ago, those of you who were here. uh, Widows in those days, if you didn't have a male to take care of you, you had no options. And so often you were outcast. It's why we see in Scripture the mandate to look after the poor and the widows, You read scripture, you see that because the widows were in that group. There was no one that could take care of them. It's why we saw Ruth gleaning Boaz's field, looking for throwaway grain to take back to her other mother-in-law, her mother-in-law, the widowed Naomi, because they had no other way of getting food. They had to go by and pick up grain heads that were trampled by people they didn't even want. They were deeply and desperately poor. And widows in that culture were deeply and desperately poor. And yet you see this group of widows, right, gathered up there showing the clothes that most likely Tabitha had made for them. It's not out of the realm of possibility to think that the good things that she did was for these widows, these poor widows that were now part of her mourning processional, showing them clothes, robes, and things that Tabitha had made for them, right? You see what's unfolding here. That Tabitha, this woman who did good things and loved the poor, most likely loved this group of widows 
and made clothes for them. And they were so proud of what they had and what Tabitha had done that they were showing Peter. Peter, you won't believe it. Look at what she's done. Look at the way this was made. Look at these robes. Look at these clothes. Look at what a good woman she is. And they're wailing and screaming and explaining all this to her, this poor kind of outcast group of widows, right? And so Peter, in that moment, looks at everybody, and he basically tells everybody to leave. He just says, get out of the room. And he moves them all out, and it says that he falls to his knees and he begins to pray. Because Peter knows that he's not the miracle doer, right? Unlike Christ, who could raise someone from the dead, Peter was just an extension of who God was. Like, these miracles were Christ in him, and Peter knew that, and he falls to his knees, and he prays. And it's one of those moments in Scripture where you wish that things would be expounded. All we know is that he prayed, but I would love to have heard the words that fell from Peter's lips. As these women, these widowed women with broken hearts, they'd already lost the men and most likely the sons in their life, and they now have lost this one woman who had cared for them and nurtured their identity, and they are wailing at the top of their lungs, right? And you have Peter on his knees. You know, we don't know what else he knows about this woman, Tabitha. We just know that he falls to his knees and he begins to pray screaming mourners in the background, people deeply saddened, and Peter begins to pray. And when he's done, I guess done, he just turns his attention to her. So on his knees, he shifts his body over to where this deceased woman is laying, and he says, Tabitha, get up. Get up. It's very similar to what Jesus said to Jarius' daughter when he called her to rise. It's it's actually a fascinating thing there that we're not going to pay too much attention to this morning. But he says, get up. And it says that once she opened her eyes and she looked at him and she sat up. And then he took her by the hand and he helped her up. And he called everybody in. And the whole town kind of blew up. They just blew up. They couldn't believe it. I mean, obviously, this is this incredible miracle thing. And it says that many people became believers in the Lord, right? Because they knew that she was dead. They knew what dead people looked like. And now this girl, Tabitha, was alive. And then Luke ends this chapter with a random sort of throwaway or seemingly throwaway verse. And he says this, After many people believed in the Lord, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Going to make a lot of sense in the next few weeks, but people were associated with their occupations. It's why we know that Peter was a fisherman and Matthew was a tax collector and Joseph was a carpenter because it added depth to their identity. Well, we know that Simon was a tanner. Well, in those days, a tanner was someone that worked with dead animals. They took the skin off dead animals and they would tan those hides and they would sell them. And for Jewish people, it was a job that was unclean. Because you are working with dead animals and Jewish law didn't permit it. And so a tanner was an unclean person. Anything he touched was unclean. And so we find, not a throwaway verse, but a very significant verse where Luke says, And Simon spent some time with this unclean man for an extended period of time named Simon, this tanner. Now the reason that's going to be important is because Peter's going to have his world rocked by the Lord here in a little bit and realize that Not just Jewish people, but all Gentile people are about to be grafted into God's kingdom. 
in the next chapter. And so Luke is making a very intentional transition to say, and even this Peter was living with an unclean heart. So we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But hang, or, or tomorrow, or maybe not tomorrow. When's the next Sunday? That's nah, Easter. Maybe the Sunday after that. We'll get there eventually. Just keep coming. So not a throwaway verse. So here's the deal. I sat with this, and I sat with this, and I sat with this, and I said, what is the point of all this? I mean, surely there's about a dozen of them. I mean, we could explore the miracle. We could talk about that incredible miracle moment. We could talk about Peter's prayer and all that might have been in there. We could explore all that, and surely that is amazing. But as I turned over this over and over and over again in my head, I could not let go of Tabitha. There's something remarkable about this woman's life, all right? And so I want to look at this encounter, these moments, and then a few things that I think we can walk away with. Not in the miracle, not in the fact that God did something amazing and raised, you know, one of only five sort of death raisings, if you will, in the New Testament. Not that. I want to look at this woman and the impact that she had on people's lives and who she was. Because I think it will shine some light into some things that I think we're called to do. So as I was looking at this, the first thing that sort of echoed in my heart was our call and our need to find purpose. Now, I'm not talking about finding purpose for your life, like going on this sort of mega quest where you try and find some kind of good thing that will take the emptiness out of your mundane life. I'm not talking about trying to find that perfect right job like I was created for X, Y, and Z, and so I'm on this lifelong purpose quest to get out of my sort of unhappy whatever it is right now. I'm not talking about that. That's not what Tabitha's life was about. In fact, most of us didn't even know she existed until I read this text today. Now, some of you have grown up in church, you may have heard her name, but you've never given three seconds of your kind of thinking to a woman named Dorcas in the New Testament, right? The only reason we know she existed is because Peter did something incredible and shined light on her life because of this miracle. So I'm not talking about some kind of purpose quest by which we find some lifelong answers for our emptiness, right? Most of our quests for purpose anyway are just to validate ourselves. We're unhappy with our lives, and so we look for something more that will give me value. So when we think about finding purpose, we think, how am I going to find value or give value to my everyday operating life? And we look around us, and Christians are making these incredible posts about how they're fighting cancer and writing blogs for single moms and starting organizations to end human trafficking, and you're trying to figure out how you're going to get the kids' beds made, right? And you go, how come my life seems to have no purpose? And everybody else around me in their public displays have these incredible movements of life. And so we go on this quest to find purpose for ourselves. I'm not talking about any of that, because really... That's not purpose. It's us just trying to shove God-shaped stuff into a void in our lives. And when we do that, we will always be empty. You can shove as much good things and God-shaped stuff into your empty void, and it will never fill you. Because your purpose, what you were created for, and what your problem is, is that we were created for this beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will give us fulfillment. And instead of addressing that, we try and address this peripheral issues from the outside in so that we find value in ourselves. It's just what we do. We look for purpose that way. But Tabitha's life was not about purpose in that manner. She loved brokenhearted, 
poor women, and she made them close. That's why she existed in her realm of thinking. No one knew about it, not a lot of glory stories. In fact, this story isn't even about that. It's about Peter raising her from the dead. But most of us are seeking purpose, and we are seeking purpose in manners that will never provide us fulfillment. But what we see in Tabitha is that the moments in her life, her identity in Christ gave her life reason to live. That every moment and every breath and every handshake and everything is an opportunity for us as followers of Christ to display God's glory. The way that you orient and live your life is purpose when you are walking with Christ. We are out searching for that thing and we are missing the God that has called us into relationship with him. Your purpose is to draw breath knowing Christ. And when that happens, every movement in your life becomes purpose. Every person, every class, every carpool line, every practice, every hug, every handshake, every single breath has purpose because God is alive in you. But see, most of us, because we live in a social media-driven world, look at the lives of the people around us, and we wonder why publicly all these things are happening in their lives, and we are just trying to get through our days. It's because we've misdefined purpose. We have defined it as what we can do for the greater good on a large scale. But really, purpose as a follower of Christ is who I know, and how I live in every single moment. It was Tabitha's life. It was her life. Not trying to clothe every poor person in the world, but clothing the ones that God has placed in her life. And they showed up in her mourning movement at her death, and they wailed for her. What we see, I think, here is that we are called to find purpose, and most of us are on these quests looking for all the wrong things. And they're not terrible things. They're just the wrong things. And we don't address our own empty relationship with Christ. And we think that if we can just get out of this job into another, out of this thing, into that, out of this, do that, find my purpose. Like it's a singular thing. Your purpose is in every breath and every moment as a follower of continuation of that, the second part of that is that whatever you do, whatever it is, do it for God's glory. Whatever it is. Now we see Paul talk about this in his letter to the, to the believers uh, that were the Colossian believers when he says, listen, verse 323 he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if you're working for the Lord and not for men. We get this picture that no matter, there's no qualifiers in there. That not just for people that are doing vocational ministry or those that are, you know, kind of pursuing some kind of great career path that's going to impact a lot of people. But there's no qualifiers. It is whatever you do. Do it as if you're working for the Lord and not for the praise of people. But we think, we really deeply believe that there's a level in which everything else doesn't seem to matter as much as these things. Right? These things that are sort of more morally acceptable or kind of greater movements. And, and, and those are the things that bring God glory. But what Paul is saying is that everything that you do is an opportunity to honor God and work at it as if you were honoring him and not people. 
We work for the glory of people. We want them to thank us. It's why we make posts on Facebook and get disappointed when no one likes it. Because we want approval of people. And so we throw our good expressions of life out there, hoping to validate the emptiness inside of us from people that we haven't talked to since high school. And we somehow think that becomes the movement in which I'm going to receive validation from my life. What a joke, right? Go back to that upper room for a minute. Tabitha is dead, and these widows, poor outcast widows, are screaming and wailing, and Peter shows up, and what do they do? They say, you're not going to believe what this woman did. Look at the clothes she made. He says, look at the robes that she made by hand while she was still with us. They were so honored and proud of the things that Tabitha had made. Why? Because you have to understand the identity of a widow. It was who they are. When your husband died, you got a label. And that label was widow, and you were helpless, and you were hopeless. And you know what Tabitha did? She made clothes for them to help change their identity, to make them feel something other than the label the world had given them. And they were moved by it. They were the ones in the upper room where the family should have been. They were the ones that were bragging to Peter about all that she had done. I guarantee you, without too much of belief here, that Tabitha poured her life into every single stitch. That she knew the names of every woman that was going to wear one of those robes. They were not service projects. They were not good deed efforts to go down and plant some flowers at a shelter. She knew their names and she knew their lives and she poured her heart into every one of them. And we know that because they showed up where families should have been at her death and they wailed for her. And they bragged about her and they boasted about her. Everything that we see in these short verses about Tabitha's life screams that she did it for God's glory. Screams that she did it for God's glory. What do we know about Tabitha? Three things. What do we know first? Not that she was a seamstress or that she did good or that she loved the poor. What was the first thing? That she was a disciple. That's what we know about her. There was a disciple in Joppa whose name in Greek and Hebrew was as beautiful as she was. It was Gazelle. That's what we know about her, that she was first a follower of Christ. And everything that we see reflects that she loved people the way that God loved her. See, we see things in our life, and certain levels of things get more attention than others and seem more worthy, right? That, that idea that everything that I do, whatever it is, not just vocational for a job, but every breath I draw, I could do it for God's glory. Every carpool line I sit in, every practice I go to, every class I take, every handshake I have, every person at the grocery store that I meet, every moment in my life is an opportunity to work for the Lord and not for the praise of people. If you need to unplug your life from those places, do it. It can't hurt you. Who are you trying to get to validate your life? So what if no one notices? So what if your boss doesn't get it, your wife doesn't get it, your girlfriend doesn't get it, your boyfriend doesn't get it, your kids don't thank you? So what? Why are we fighting for their approval? The idea is that God is our audience. So if no one knows, so be it. 
We don't have one movement in this chapter that where Tabitha was trying to get people to say, man, you are so great at doing this. It was upon her death, her death, that they showed up and they honored her. We want our validation now to validate our God-shaped, chastened purposes so that we can cover up our empty relationships with Christ from the outside. It's broken. It's a broken system. Fall on your knees. Understand what God has done for you and begin to live and work at whatever it is for him and his glory alone. Who cares who sees? It doesn't matter. Pour yourself into every stitch and every breath and every handshake. Final thing that I want you to see before we wrap this up is that we are called in addition to those things, right? Finding our purpose and, and whatever we do, living for and doing it for God's glory, to live in a way that honors others. So we, it's easy to see how Tabitha did this, right? I mean, these widows, these people, this, this group of people, they were there. You remember that at the end when Peter calls them in, it says the believers and the widows came in. You know what that means? It means that some of the b- widows were not believers. Tabitha loved them all the same. She didn't designate in her life who receives more. She just loved people, and she honored them, and she gave them new identity, and she made them close, and she poured her life into that. Easy to see. We've talked about it before. But my favorite picture of this actually doesn't come from Tabitha. It comes from Peter. So Peter's kneeling on his knees at the bed of this dead woman, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays. And he turns to her and he says, Tabitha, rise. And she gets up, or she, she opens her eyes, she sits up, and he gives her his hand. And what's really challenging is that the English translation of this encounter is so brutally sad that we miss what's happening. It's actually a terrible translation. Because what we see is that Peter prayed, he tells her to get up, she opens her eyes, sits up, and he gives her her hand as if maybe she couldn't get up on her own, as if she was only kind of partially alive until Peter helps her up. But really the translation, what, what the English cannot capture, is this moment of chivalry that takes place. And what really is unfolding is that as he turns to her, he says, Tabitha, rise. And she opens her eyes and she looks at him and she sits up. And then Peter gives her his hand, all right? Gives her his hand as if to say, Madam, you who have loved people, As a disciple of Christ, you have a room full of people that love you. Let me help you up so that you can see them. This is an incredible moment that we can't see in our English translation. But it's a moment of Greek kind of honor and hospitality that says you deserve a place of honor. Let me give you my hand. She didn't need him to help her up. He was basically saying, you deserve this moment. He had had 10 miles of people telling him what an amazing woman this was. He had seen the clothes displayed by the widows. He is hearing the wailing even as he is in there. And he says, ma'am, lover of Christ, care person that cares for the poor, that clothes the naked, you got a room full of people that want to see you. Take my hand. that, but it's there. You and I, not trying to be offensive, but we live in ways that honor ourselves. We want recognition, we want glory, we want to 
reflect things in your attention and in whatever it is. It's the world of a selfie. We want people to see where we are. We want to be front and center. We don't live in a world that honors other people unless we're in the picture, literally and figuratively. And what we see in Scripture is the call to honor people, to give them moments, to get out of the way, to not be seen. Who cares if people don't know what you're doing? But this moment, Peter chose to honor him. And through that, people see the miracle and they come to know Jesus. Nowhere in the text do we see them going, and Peter is amazing. No, they honor the Lord and they honor Tabitha. How are you honoring people in your life? Literally honoring them, giving them place of prestige, letting them get glory, even though you may have been a part of what happened. It all comes back to who you're trying to impress, who you're trying to honor, and who you're trying to validate. What I see in Tabitha's life is is a deep call for all of us to find our purpose in Christ again, to quit trying to find that thing that will make us feel a little better about our imperfect, address the problem at hand, our own relationship with Christ. And then whatever it is, I don't care if it's ironing clothes or, or if it's picking up your kids or if it's taking tests, do it for God's glory. And I know that sounds crazy, but listen, it's true. Whatever it is to say, God, this is my moment with my attitude and my words to honor you. And you know what? No one has to see it. That's, I'm, help me be okay with that. No one has to recognize, I want you to receive honor and glory. And finally, God, I want to be a person that honors other people. I want to pour my life into every stitch. I want to know the names of the perf- people that are going to wear these clothes. I want to honor people. Most of us would do those things as long as people knew we did those things. What if no one knew? What if the people that were wearing the clothes got the recognition and no one even knew that you gave the money, the resources, the time? Would you care? I hope the answer is no, but I know me and I know my black sinful heart, right? And you're probably similar on some level. Fight that at all costs. I dare you to attempt to model your life after this woman because I think it is the gold standard. And she's virtually unmatched. Those of you that are going to Mark, I pray that what would happen is you engage what is being taught, that it would come and it would infect our church. That our desire would be more than just to show up and teach scripture and sing, but that we would be moved to action fighting for the oppressed around the world, like Tabitha did. Fighting for the marginalized and the widow and the outcast and the poor, realizing that women across across our globe Um, are being trafficked, horrific things are happening to them, and the church just raises its hands and keeps singing. We want to be that church. So let's become infected with lives that want to fight for those type of people and for people in general, believers or not. It's our call as Christ followers.